Amen. Happy Independence Day. It's a day to celebrate, I think, some wonderful things about our nation. I am well aware, as you are, that this is far from a perfect union. As we saw the video at the beginning of this service, there are lots of things working in our land. People are at odds with one another. We're aware of those things. We're also aware that we've not always lived up to our highest ideals. We talk about God, the creator, give creating each one with inalienable rights. We talk about liberty and justice for all. Have we always seen that? No. We think back to the days of slavery and even after where some people were considered not fully human. That's what it amounted to. And even in our own day, there are the unborn that many consider not fully human. These are egregious things. I recognize that. But we have these principles upon which our nation was founded. No other nation has ever been founded on such principles, on such ideas. The idea of liberty for all, the idea of Freedom of worship for all. Do you realize that was an innovation? First time in history in America was religious freedom granted. That's never been the case before. No one thought it could even happen. It's a land where there is such a thing as free speech and there are due, there is due process to protect rights. There are so many good things and it would be a terrible thing if you were not able to give thanks for those good things because of the troubles that we see in our land today. I remember, gosh, I was 32, 33 years old. Linda and I were living in Fort Worth, and my parents came to visit us. And they started telling us all these family stories I had never heard before. Have you ever, have you ever heard some new family stories? My mom started talking about her family, her uncles, and all the dysfunction that was part of that family. My dad did too. These were all things that we were never told when I was growing up, never knew anything about them. And suddenly it put my family in a new light because our family was not exactly, you know, by the by the family handbook rules. I mean, we didn't do everything just right. I can say that. Didn't always communicate well. In fact, we generally didn't communicate at all. But on that day when I heard all about where my parents had come from, I felt this deep gratitude. They weren't perfect parents and our family wasn't a perfect family. But I saw that they had slowed the momentum of generational dysfunction. They had slowed its momentum. They had done better by us than had been done by them. I felt such gratitude to God, to them, for my family. People today, many people anyway, are very, they're upset at the imperfections, some of them serious in our country. No doubt there are problems. No one's denying that. But if you'll stop for a moment, and instead of comparing the United States with some ideal in your mind about the way things ought to be, and instead look at it in terms of human history, 
Look at how the world has been and even still is. And then ask yourself, have, do we see more justice, more freedom in this land than has been seen before? And the answer is absolutely, absolutely. There have been more people who've come to this land seeking what we have than any other country in the world. We have much to be grateful for. If I put up my family with, against some image of what I think families ought to be, then I won't ever stop finding fault. If I start thinking in terms of historical reality, then I start saying, you know what? I, I had it pretty good, and we have it really good. And we need to give thanks for that. On the one hand, we need to pray. Pray for God to give us renewal and repentance and and. Uh, a change of heart and to reunite a divided people. We absolutely need to do that. That's countercultural. But you know what else is countercultural? It's to give thanks and to celebrate, to set aside one day in the whole year and stop the relentless self criticism and celebrate the good that we have and give thanks for it. Are there many things that fall short? Absolutely. But in our own founding ideals, we have the measure to critique those and rise above them. And hasn't that happened time and time again? And so Independence Day, it's a day we can celebrate. And as Christians, we can celebrate knowing that all good things come from God. And we can give thanks knowing that others have paid a heavy price. Don't ever forget that. I sometimes am struck by how we take for granted what we have and we forget that others have handed it on to us. And it always touches my heart when I see people remembering. It reminds me to remember. Linda and I were in a restaurant some time ago in another town. We we're sitting there and there was a young lady who was working there. Now, I'm, I'm not judging her in what I'm describing. People, people come in all different packages, and you can't predict what their political views are, what their religious views are, just by their appearance. I get that. But just hang with me for a moment. So here she is, and she's got spiky, multicolored hair, and she's got tats all the way down both arms. She's young. She doesn't exactly look like a flag waver. That's what I'm trying to get to. Maybe she is. Maybe she has been her whole life. She doesn't exactly look like it. And there was a man sitting there, and he had a cap on. He had, he had served as a Marine. And she walks up to the table, and she just says, thank you for your service. And he said, you're welcome. And she walked off. Just that simple act. And that did me so much good to see. There are many people who have done much for us. The military, absolutely. Police officers, true. Firefighters, teachers, training children. You know, so many different ways that people serve our community. We need to be grateful for what they've done in the past, what they do today. And I hope you are. I know you are. So happy Independence Day. Wow. And all the people said nothing. You're supposed to say something like, you know, amen. 
Or like when I'm talking to Eli Gutierrez, he was sitting over here in the first service and Eli just finished seminary, he's from Mexico and he's going to start serving this month as a pastoral intern. And so I walk up to Eli and I say, Eli, happy Independence Day. He didn't miss a beat. He said, God bless America. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was well done. That was well done. He picked it up. He knew what he was supposed to say. So, so there you go. Now we're, now we're on it. Now we're on it. Oh, listen, we have been making our way through the Gospel of John, and next week there's going to be a new Bible reading journal out that's going to take us forward in the second half of John's Gospel. But it's, it's rich. It's rich. Some of you are coming from life groups. Um, if you haven't yet become part of a life group, I help, hope you will. That's where you find community. That's where you study the Word of God. And nothing will help you in your life more than studying the Word of God in community. That's so important. So I hope that you've, you've done that today. And if you did, you've been, well, some of our groups are in different topics, but most of you will have been studying John chapter 11. That's an extraordinary passage because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Are you, are you familiar with the account? Familiar with the story? Lazarus, thank you. And everybody said, amen. amen. Now, did you know the story before you just learned it this, this life group hour? Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Uh, <laughs> so it's this incredible account of how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead four days. It's extraordinary. I'm not going to preach on that passage. That's where our life groups have been. But it's striking to me how often faith is emphasized because Jesus says to his disciples before he goes to Bethany, they don't want him to go to Bethany because they know that he is in danger. But he said, you know, I need to go and wake Lazarus up. Well, don't worry about Lazarus. If he's asleep, he'll wake up on his own. He said, no, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. In other words, you'll see what I do and you'll believe. And as he approaches Bethany, Martha, the sister of Lazarus, one of his two sisters, falls at his feet and she's weeping, and he says to her that he who believes shall live even if they die, those who believe. And then when he's about to do this great miracle, he's standing outside the tomb. It's been four days, like I said, and some people said, are you sure you want to remove that stone? Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then after Jesus has the stone moved and he calls Lazarus up from the dead and the people are stunned by this incredible miracle. We read in chapter 12 that Jesus comes back to Bethany and he has dinner and Lazarus is there at the table. And of course, Martha's serving because that's what Martha always did. And Mary's at the feet of Jesus because that's where Mary always was. But in between the miracle and chapter 12, we see something very interesting. That's where I want to turn this morning. In John 11, 
verse 45, it says this. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, that is, raised Lazarus from the dead, and they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So there were many who believed in Jesus when he performed this miracle. They saw through the miracle to who Jesus was. But there were some others. They saw the miracle, but they didn't see, not really. They didn't understand what it meant about Jesus. And so they went straight to the Pharisees because they knew the Pharisees hated Jesus and they're bringing back word what Jesus is doing because they're trying to stir the pot. They're trying to make things worse for the Lord. And indeed, that's exactly what they do. The Pharisees were disturbed. So they turned to the priests who were Sadducees. Now, you know, you get lost in all these terms. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians are all different types of terms for groups at that time. But the Pharisees were kind of like your fundamentalists of the day. And your Sadducees were like your, your liberal first church people. And they didn't get along too well. But one thing on which they could agree was this. Jesus had to be dealt with. So the Pharisees connect up with the priests who were Sadducees, and they have a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, Sanhedrin in ancient Israel, it was like the Supreme Court and the legislative branch or Congress and the executive branch under the president. It was like that all rolled up in one. With this one caveat, Rome was ultimately in control. So the Sanhedrin had control to the extent that Rome let them have it. So the Sanhedrin is meeting and they want to deal with Jesus. So they're all, they're all flustered by what's going on. They have been trying and trying to stop him. Everywhere he went, they criticized him, they opposed him, they tried to turn people against him. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. So what were they going to do? They were, they were at their wit's end. What can we do to put an end to this? If we don't put an end to it, Rome's going to put an end to us. That was the idea when they said, you know, Rome will come and take away our temple and our nation. Because Rome, <laughs> Rome was fairly tolerant except of one thing, and that was insurrection. And if they saw a popular movement gathering steam, a popular movement that might rebel against them, they had no tolerance for that. So you can imagine what they're thinking. Here's Jesus going around doing miracles. More and more people are believing in him. Some are saying he's Messiah. That's the term for a king, the king of Israel. And so they're worried that Rome's going to hear about this and Rome's going to come down hard. Now, the NIV says that Rome will come and take away our temple and our nation. The Greek actually says we'll take away our place. And most scholars think place there means holy place, as in temple, and it might mean that. But there is a significant minority of scholars who think the idea is different. 
In other words, these powerful people, these people who had control, what they're concerned about is that if things get out of control, Rome will come in and they'll bring the hammer down and we will lose our place and our nation will be oppressed. We will lose our position of power and authority and prestige. So they were worried perhaps about themselves as much about the nation, but they don't know what to do. And then one of their numbers stands up. It was a man who, by the time the end came, had served as high priest for 18 years. Now, that wasn't easy to do under Rome, because if, if Rome didn't feel like you were serving their interests, they'd throw you out. But this man, Caiaphas, he knew politics. He knew how to deal with Rome. And he also knew how to deal with an upstart like Jesus. Look what it says. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and that, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. That is a remarkable statement. See, because what's going on with Caiaphas is, this is realpolitik. He is, he is pushing a ruthless political solution. He says, you've got to face it. This strategy is not working at all. You're ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you what needs to happen. Somebody's got to die. And it's either going to be one man, Jesus of Nazareth, or it's going to be the nation. You're going to have to make a choice. And it was very clear what choice Caiaphas wanted to make. Jesus had to die to save the nation. So all of this in his mind is nothing but just rank pragmatism. Power politics at work. That's all he's doing. But John says he was high priest. He was in this position. He was supposed to represent God. And by the providence of God, God actually spoke through him. He didn't know it. He didn't intend it. He was speaking better than he understood. But it remained true that Jesus came to die for the nation. He died that Israel might live. But actually, it was even more than that. He died so that Israel might live and so that people from around the world might come to believe and be saved. As he says in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, if I am lifted up, I will what? Man, you, you are, you are, I am going to do something really awesome for you if you can answer this question. If I be lifted up, Jesus says, no, you can't, you can't, no, you don't get help. Do you have it? Maybe? No? What's that? Oh, that was a good guess, but it was a guess that I am the Messiah. No, almost. What he said was, if I be lifted up, he means lifted up on a cross, 
I will draw all people to myself. He's dying for Israel, but he's dying for people everywhere. That's why we're here this morning, because Jesus died for us. That's the heart of the gospel. And Caiaphas, without intending to do it, spoke that truth. He meant something completely different, but he spoke that truth. It's just like Pilate. When Pilate had the cross made on which Jesus was crucified, he had a sign put across, Jesus, King of the Jews. The Jews objected to that. Put that he claimed to be King of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Well, Pilate wasn't meaning to honor Jesus, not at all. But those were the words, and they testify to the Lord whatever Pilate might have meant. Jesus is king of the Jews and king of the world, the Lord of every other lordship. And so this happens with Caiaphas. He's got to die. And indeed, says John, he will die, not just for Israel, but for everyone. Well, Caiaphas makes his plea and everyone gets on board. So from that day on, the Sanhedrin plotted to take his life. More literally in the Greek, they resolved. This Supreme Court made a decision. Jesus must die. Well, Jesus knows this. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. They might arrest him, imprison him, put him to death, and stop this heresy from spreading. That was the plan. It didn't quite work out that way. Jesus came. Yes, he was arrested. He was crucified, and he was raised from the dead. And as the Lord of lords, he pours out his spirit, and the church is born, and the church continues to spread. And even today, the church continues to spread across this world, and it's because Christ is Lord. Now, when you go through this passage and you read it carefully, what strikes you, I think, is how much how many ironic twists there are. So you have Caiaphas. He's saying to the Sanhedrin, you're ignorant, you know nothing. And yet here is the high priest who is ignorant and knows nothing of the one against whom he set himself, of Jesus. It's ironic. He speaks this truth about Jesus that he will die for the nation, he must die for the nation, that the nation might live. And yet, ironically, it is true, though as he means it, it's completely false. 
There's more irony, though, because he wants to stop Jesus by killing him, even though Jesus has already shown with the raising of Lazarus that he has power over death. And then what's not obvious from reading the passage, but it would have been to anybody who read John's gospel, John's gospel was written in the 90s. That is, you know, sometime between 90 um, and 99 AD. So it's like 40 years or actually more than 40 years subsequent to these events. But 40 years after Jesus was crucified, around A.D. 70, Rome did destroy Israel. See, all the political ferment in the land, all this resentment during Rome, it kept boiling up and finally it boiled over and Rome crushed it and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and get this, wiped out the Sadducees. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. He was a priest. The priests served in the temple. The temple's gone. The Sadducees disappeared from history. That's ironic. Caiaphas wants to disappear Jesus, but all the Sadducees are disappeared in spite of all their maneuverings. You see the irony of it all. The deepest irony is that you and I and people around the world find life through the death of Jesus. That's really the heart of the gospel here. Jesus Christ died in our place, not only for us, but in our place. So he bears upon himself the curse of sin so that we won't live under a curse, but under the blessing of God. And he grants eternal life so that we live even if we die. And between being delivered from the curse and living forever in the presence of God, you have this life where we're trying to work it out. And we struggle sometimes, but we're trying to work it out. Christ at the cross broke the power of sin. And so if you're a believer, you are free from sin. Even when you struggle with it, the power has been broken and you can, with the help of Christ, overcome it as you work your way to living forever in the presence of the Father. I mean, that is the irony of the gospel. Jesus, by submitting to death, conquered death and saved us and gave us life. And then... In doing this, this was his purpose, this was his plan. This is why he came. So Caiaphas and the others wanted to frustrate what Christ was up to, and in the process, they made it happen. He came to die, and they saw to it that he was put to death. So God was working out his purpose, and it didn't matter what the powers that be thought about it. it didn't matter what they wanted. God had decided that Jesus Christ would defeat death and rise from the dead. He had already decided that, that he would be Lord of Lords and the Savior of the world. That was determined. No human being was going to stop that from happening. No power on earth could stop that from happening. Jesus said that the powers of hell could not stop that from happening. Don't you worry about the cause of God. Sometimes we worry about that. We think, oh, you know, Christianity's on the retreat. What's going to happen to the, you know, the kingdom of God? Listen, if you've read any church history at all, you know that just about every generation, people have predicted the demise of the church. 
generation after generation, they said, it's all going away. This has happened again and again. It's nothing new in our day. This just repeats over and over. And guess what happens? God is never defeated. Never defeated. God rules. Jesus Christ is Lord. And what's true for the whole, folks, listen, it's true for you and me. God works in wholesale. He also works in retail. He works in your life and in my life. And there's a purpose that he's laid his hand upon us. There's a purpose. And that purpose is being worked out day by day. And there are problems and difficulties and obstacles. It may seem like people stand in your way or circumstances stand in your way, but that's, that's completely false. Every obstacle you have is part of God working out his plan. See, Caiaphas was an obstacle to defeat Jesus, but in the effort, he actually, he actually pushed God's plan along. Every obstacle is part of God's plan for you. God is going to use you if you'll put your faith in him and you'll trust him and you'll lean on him. He's going to do that. Now, it doesn't mean it's always easy. Sometimes God calls us to a hard path. And there are times I meet people, I think, you know, I, I just, Lord, I don't understand why they have to go through what they're going through. But I just trust that God has a purpose and there will be a reward in glory. That somehow the sufferings of this life will emerge in the triumph of the next. I believe that, I trust that. But in your life, all the obstacles are really there to help you move forward in God's will. One of the most amazing women I've ever met was a lady named Becky Ellison. She was a member of this church. She passed away some time ago. I don't know how many of you know Becky. When I asked in the first service, lots of people knew Becky. I think probably many of you did not. But what a woman of faith. She died too young. She died at 58. She had a 10-year battle with cancer off and on for the last several years that she lived. She had a battle. You would never know it if you saw her somewhere. I mean, you would see that she was having trouble getting around. Eventually, she was actually not able to walk, but, but you wouldn't know it from her spirit and the joy in her spirit. What an amazing woman she was and is. If you believe, you shall live even if you die, right? What an amazing woman. She had a, a bachelor's degree and a master's in social work from Baylor. And she gave her life to serving Christ just in the most amazing, remarkable way. If you've ever heard of Christian Women's Job Corps and Christian Men's Job Corps, she was an integral part of that in terms of the whole strategic plan in the state of Texas. She traveled through Texas promoting that ministry, but she was active in many areas of ministry and certainly in our church. As the cancer got worse, uh, she came to talk with me. She wanted to talk about some issues surrounding what she knew was going to be her, her death. It was coming soon. And I asked her, Becky, what's, what's on your heart? What's on your mind right now? Of course, the first thing on her heart was Michael, her husband, and, and uh, Chelsea, her daughter, and Chelsea's family. 
But she said, you know, I, I know the Lord's got that. I know the Lord's taking care of them. Said, really, besides that, I just want to do what God's called me to do. I want to finish the work he's given me to do. That's all. Said, I don't feel sorry for myself. I am so grateful for the life God's given me. He's given me 10 years since I got diagnosed from cancer. And the things I've seen him do, just amazing. I'm so grateful to God. So I'm not worried about death at all. I'm, I can't wait to see Jesus. I know, here's what she said, God's got this. When I said that in the first service, where so many people knew Becky, they were like, yeah, yeah. Lisa Smyers, you knew Becky, right? You ever hear her say, God's got this? <laughs> she always would say, God's got this. And she meant it. God's got this. You know, when you talk about the church in the world and what's going on in the world, God's got this. You talk about your life, God's got that. I don't know what you're dealing with, but God's got that. And God had it for her. What a woman of faith. What an example, I think. So you don't need to be thinking that you've been, you've been dealt a bad hand. You've been dealt the hand that God intends to use to glorify his name. That's what he said about Lazarus when he was dead. That's what he said. He said that, that this will not end in death, but that he died so that the son might be glorified. That whatever you're facing, whatever it is, God intends to glorify his son through it. So, <laughs> whatever the meaning seems to be on the human level, step back and try to rise up and look at it from God's point of view. God is working. And that's part of the irony, the irony of redemption. A savior died that we might live. A savior rules now. And he rules through the hard things of life so that we might overcome. He did that through the church. He'll do that for you. That's gospel. That's good news. I want you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we know you sent Christ to bear our sins and to carry them away, that the Lord Jesus rules and reigns even at this moment. And Jesus, we are open to you and to your Holy Spirit, to the life that you give. And we know that nothing can defeat your purposes, just as Caiaphas and the others couldn't defeat your purpose. No one today can defeat it. And we know that nothing in our lives can stop us, Lord, from fulfilling your purpose for us. Give us faith. That's, that's what we need. Don't we know that's what we need. Give us faith this morning. Amen. If you'd stand with me, I want to add one very brief word. It's brief, but it may be the most important thing I've said this morning. And that is that you can live because Christ has died for you you can receive eternal life. You can. But the Lord doesn't force this on anyone. We talk about liberty and freedom for all. <laughs> well, you know, 
God gives liberty. God gives freedom. He gives us a choice. So we have to decide, will we look through all that Christ did to the reality of who he is? Or will we just say, oh yeah, that's kind of interesting. Historical figure, good. I mean, if we look through it and see who he is, we see a savior and we can be saved. I wanna encourage you to receive Christ this morning. In fact, I'm, I'm asking you to receive him and don't leave until you have put things right between yourself and God. When this service is over, I'm gonna to move to the front. I'd like you to come. I'd really like you to come. I'd like to talk with you. I'd like to pray with you. No more important decision can ever be made. And you will never, ever regret it. I promise you that. Amen.